Good morning, Redeemer Church. Looks like you all found the uh, Moven pick. I'm Pastor Dave. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. It was a joy yesterday to gather with many of the men in the church for our monthly men's breakfast. If you missed it, please catch us in April as we as the men of Redeemer gather together uh, again. But it was just a wonderful, wonderful time. If you're new to us, just maybe new information or maybe a reminder for us that next week we'll be at the Crown Plaza, Sheikh Zayed Road. That's our normal home. But for many of us, this feels like home because this was our home uh, for a couple of years as well. So we're grateful uh, here to the Movin Pick for hosting us today. And we're glad to be back at the Crown Plaza uh, next week. With all those moves, especially in our past, I'm thankful that the church is not a building, but that a church is a people. A church is a people who are committed to God and committed to one another. We've met in so many different places, uh, yet at the same time, we're thankful that he's provided for us, and we are thankful for the church buildings which do exist here in the UAE. There are four evangelical church buildings. We're grateful for that. In fact, 11 years ago, His Highness Sheikh Saud bin Saqqar al-Qasimi, the ruler of the Ras al-Qaimah Emirate, invited a few of us pastors to his palace up in Raq. And so myself and a few other pastors went up there. And yes, we were met by lots of gold. We were met by uh, some large, a pride of large blue peacocks at the front door. It was the first time I had uh, told someone uh, and called someone your royal highness and wasn't joking around with a buddy. This was the king. This was the ruler. This was his highness who had invited us through some connections into the royal palace in Ras al-Khaimah. And in God's kindness and his sovereignty, the ruler gave land uh, to build an evangelical church building in his emirate. And so now fast forward uh, a little over a decade, a church has been planted. Pastor Josh Manley serves as the senior pastor. A building about six years ago has been built, and we are so thankful. We were just there, many of us, for Joshua and Haley's wedding about a week ago, and we're all invited to what's on the screens right now as Rack Church celebrates their 10th anniversary next Saturday evening, and they're celebrating it with a, a conference, with a real fascinating conference led by Pastor Greg Gilbert, uh, the author of uh, many books that we've read, like What is the Gospel? or Who is Jesus? The conference is going to be on those exact topics. So that's next Saturday. I hope many of you uh, can come. That's 5 p.m. You can sign up, rackchurch.com slash 10. It's also been in our emails of the past three weeks or so. So that's upcoming Saturday. Our family actually spent a couple hours with Pastor Josh and Jenny in their home. We visited them in Ras Al-Khaimah last weekend. They're doing well. They're very encouraged by what God has done in this past decade, and they look forward to celebrating that time uh, together. In fact, let's just stop and pray a short prayer of petition for uh, Rack Church, thanking God for them and praying for us as we approach God's Word. So let's pray together now. Oh, Father, we we praise you for your work here in the UAE. We praise you for the work in our own hearts that you have saved us by the death and resurrection of Jesus. That it's not us clinging to you, that you have clinged to us. But not only us, there are many other fellow believers throughout this country gathering this very hour. Father, we ask that Rack Church would enjoy your blessing and provision. 
Would they fall more in love with Christ as they grow in their knowledge of your word and as they love one another? Bless Pastor Joss as he preaches from John chapter 8 this morning. May the church experience your comfort and your grace. We pray that they'd fight for holiness. We thank you for other founding members there, formerly at Redeemer, like Gary and Tanya Jenkinson. Gary, who now serves on staff, we praise you for the kindness of His Highness Sheikh Saud bin Sakhar al-Qasimi. We thank you for sustaining this congregation for the past 10 years. May their celebration next Saturday be sweet. And as we as a church approach your word now in Romans chapter 3, would we gaze upon the beauty of our Savior? Would you make us a tender-hearted people? Make us a humble congregation. Make us a church that is dependent on you for everything. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you died today, do you know where you'd go? I realize it's a bit morbid to talk about. Maybe a strange Question, but asking you that question is one of the most loving things I could ask. If you died later today, do you think you'd go to heaven or hell, someplace else, cease to exist? I wonder how you'd answer that question, and I wonder how sure you'd be. Are you 100% sure of that final destination? Uh, maybe you're just 50-50. I think there's a chance I'd go there, uh, but I'm, I'm really not sure. God knows, but uh, I don't. And if you stood before God, so you get to the, the gates of, let's say, heaven, and you, you stand before God, and he were to ask you, on what basis should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Well, today we finished the first main section of Romans. We started it uh, there after the intro, I believe in verse 18 of chapter 1, and it goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, which Joanna read for us just a few moments ago. And we're going to finish that section. So we've had several weeks of condemnation and condemnation and condemnation. Next week we start justification. How are we righteous before a holy God? But we finish this section on condemnation today. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw a little bit of a surprise. After Paul condemns Israel, he says in the first eight verses of chapter 3, actually, Israel has an advantage. Recipients of God's promises, a chosen nation, the advantage of being entrusted with the very word of God. I haven't seen the new Avatar movie. I haven't even seen the first one. But I know many of you have, so I think this is a good time to bring back one of my favorite quotes of Pastor John Piper. When speaking of the Bible, he says, it's the word of God. It can't be boring. When it's boring, we're the problem. It's filled with a volcano of joy and energy and power and love and grace and justice and strength. It can't be boring. And I love what what Pastor John says at the end. The world is boring. The movie Avatar is boring. That was years ago when the, the first movie came out. But the same is true of the second one and all movies and all books and all stories of all time. Anything this world has to offer is 
boring compared to the Bible. The Jews were entrusted with the very word of God. And how is it so much better than than the avatars of the world? Well, within it, it contains the most beautiful and dynamic, life-changing, life-transforming story in the history of the world. It contains the greatest hero in the history of the world, Jesus. It is the greatest love story. It is the greatest story of action and adventure and rescue, the greatest hero epic of, of all time. There is no greater hero than Jesus. Nothing can be more breathtaking than God's word. And the Jews, they were entrusted with the Old Testament. But friends, we have it even better today. This side of the cross, we see the hero that the Old Testament pointed to. But now we can look back and we can see that hero. We can see that it spoke of Jesus. And we see the New Testament where Jesus comes to life. And we see God became flesh. God come to earth. The Jews had the word that pointed to the Savior, but now we have the word pointing back to the Savior. We have the New Testament, promises made by God in the Old Testament, and we see the promises were kept by God in the New Testament, a Savior King who's actually come. And what a privilege. But the Jews had a privilege as well to be entrusted with the word of God, but it's one they didn't take for their advantage. Pastor Chuck Swindoll puts it like this. Suppose a billionaire came to visit your home and proposed this. I want to give my money to the most needy people in the world. And I want to do it through you. I want to funnel those funds through your personal bank account. And I want you to give that money away to the most needy people. And I want you to take some of that money for yourself. Whatever you need, you take. So you take what you need and you spread out that wealth to the needy people of the world. Now, imagine, fast forward 10 years or so, 10 years go by, and yet no one is better off than, any, than, than they were before. None of the recipients had cashed their checks. Even you, the one who had the money going through your bank account, even you hadn't made a single withdrawal for yourself. The money just sat there. Now, did you have an advantage? Well, of course, you had complete access to this billionaire's wealth, yet in a practical sense, you gained nothing because you failed to withdraw funds for yourself. You're no better off than those other people that failed to cash in their checks. To the Jews, they had access to the truth. They had access to the word of God. It was an advantage we see in verses 1 through 8. And they were meant with this advantage. It was an advantage for themselves, but they were meant to bless the world with it. Not sending out money, But the truth, they were to be truth bearers. And while the Gentiles exchanged the truth of God for a lie, the Jews did the same, both with the same sin-sick heart. The Jews had an advantage, but didn't take advantage of it. In the good sense. The Jews had an advantage, but they didn't take an advantage of it. Now after chapter 2, we're thinking, wow, Jews... Gentiles, both condemned. Chapter 1, we see the Gentiles condemned. Chapter 2, we see the Jews condemned. We see that we're both, we're all on the same thinking ship. Then chapter 3, hold up just a minute. The Jews do have an advantage. But then now as we close this section on condemnation, chapter 3, Paul wants to remind us, yes, Israel, 
God's chosen nation, but we're still on the same sinking ship to the same death apart from Christ. Now here's my simple point today. It's one point, it's pretty straightforward. It's a bunch of short words, short and simple. Here it is, all of us are bad, so we need Jesus. That's it, one point. I hope everybody can remember it. I hope everybody memorizes it. It's just one point. All of us are bad, so we need Jesus. Any children in the room, any tweens, everybody know this, memorize this. This is the section on condemnation, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. This is the point. That's it, all. That all is the key word, all, all. I'll say it again, all. How about everybody just repeat it and say it with me? All, all of us are bad. We're sinners, and so we need who? We need Jesus. We need Jesus. All of us are bad, so we need Jesus. Well, Paul gets right to it, so let's jump in. Verse nine, look at your Bibles, your bulletins, the screens. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So Paul's finishing off this section. He asks the question, what then? What's my conclusion? What's my closing statement? How can I summarize what I've been saying since chapter 1, verse 18? Yes, the Jews had privilege. Yes, they had responsibility. Yes, they had God's word. They were to be stewards of God's word. But it doesn't mean that they're exempt from judgment or free from sin. There's no get out of, out of hell free card that, that were in their wallets. So what then? If the Jews have an advantage, are they better off? Now, on the one hand, they were. Paul's admitted this. They were entrusted with the oracles or the the word of God. But it doesn't mean that they were exempt from judgment or free from sin. There's no, no sinlessness that they achieved simply because of their ethnicity so what then well just to be clear being a jew wasn't some kind of magic that just automatically saved you that's why that word all is so important both jews and greeks that's a way of saying everyone jews and greeks jews and gentiles jews and everyone else the whole world, all under sin, no one is exempt. And in case you missed it, verses 10 through 12, repeat it a few more times. Take a look. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Pretty clear, isn't it? None. No, not one, no one, no one, worthless, no one does good, not even one. That's all in this, just those first three Verses. Now we call that repetition. We call that beating a dead horse. Now, of course, it doesn't mean good deeds are never done. But remember who the standard is it's God. And God is perfect, God is perfectly holy. All of us fall short no matter how good we think we are or or how many good deeds we do. And to be honest, many of us have done a lot of good, some of us even more than others, but we still can't get to God on their own. There are many ways we could illustrate this. Think about it this way. Uh, In the context of running, I've been doing some running these days. I ran a 10K a couple weeks ago with a close friend here in the church, and thankfully we both finished. It was a minor miracle uh, for, for, for me, but the conditions were perfect. The weather was nice, the beautiful 
uh, buildings and the architecture were, were nice to see. There was a, a nice breeze. There were water stations along the way. The sun was only yet rising at the end of the race, and so it was cool, and, and everything was just perfect, a great race. Well, now imagine instead a different race. Imagine starting the race at the Burj Khalifa in mid-July. But not only that, the race starts at the Burj Khalifa and it goes to Beirut, Lebanon through Saudi Arabia. And it's a foot race. There are no water stations. There's no cool breeze. There's no first aid stations. And you are going to attempt this race. Now, let's say this is your first ever race. You don't run. Maybe for you, walking fast is about the the most that you do. Well, maybe you can get through a few kilometers Maybe uh, you run as far as you've ever run before, before you pass out of heat stroke. Eventually, uh, all alone, you die. Well, another runner, a bit stronger, and, and, and they end up doing 10 kilometers, maybe 20 kilometers, maybe 30 kilometers. But again, they pass out from heat stroke and die. But among this group, you have the Olympic champion of the marathon. This is the best runner in the world. And this runner, ready to go for this race. But even for them, maybe they make it through in July somehow 100 kilometers. Running all their lives. But see, Beirut is 2,500 kilometers away from the Burj Khalifa. It's July, there are no breaks. So even if you make it 100 kilometers, is this runner any less dead than the others? Of course not. No one can make it. Each would die of heat stroke. In the same way, no matter how good we think we are or how much better we think we are than the person next to us, that marathon runner maybe started that race thinking, ha ha, that person's never gotten off the couch. I'm the Olympic champion. Well, no matter how much better you think you are than the person sitting next to you, in a similar way, all of us have sinned All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Even our greatest efforts, the Bible says, lead to death. We'll see next week the wages of sin is indeed death. In fact, apart from God, we're already dead. Well, these verses and the ones following in Romans aren't statements Paul's made up. These aren't started in the mind of Paul. Paul's not making these these verses up. It's seven Old Testament quotations. The first one is from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. It writes, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Paul didn't make this up. This is truth consistent with all of Scripture. So we start with Ecclesiastes. Then there's five references to the Psalms. And then there's a reference to Isaiah. Each showing different ways humans are unrighteous. This is bad news. All of us are bad. You see, there's no caveat here. There's no exemptions. Paul makes clear what the Bible makes clear. No one does good. No one is good. No one understands. No one seeks for God. This is ghastly, gruesome, and grim. We're all sinners. I like the way John Stott defines sin. He wrote, sin is the revolt of the self against God. The dethronement of God with a view of the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification, making yourself God. The reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. Sin is saying, I'm God. He's not. 
We all do this in one way or another. It's not just sins plural we have to deal with, but our very nature is sinful. We are sinners with no way of shredding this nature. This is a doctrine called total depravity. Notice again in verse 9, Paul doesn't say we're under sins. Certainly, we commit multiple sins in our lifetime, even every single day. Certainly, we commit sins, but he says sin, we're under sin. Our condition is one of a sinner. I'm reminded of Pilgrim's Progress. Tom Wolfe mentioned this book in his sermon a couple weeks ago. After the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress is the next best-selling book of all time. And in the book, it's, a, it's an allegory of the Christian life. The main character's name is actually Christian. At one point, Christian is in a room. It's covered with layers of dust. It had never been swept before, and a, a man is called in to, to sweep. Now, we can relate to this in Dubai. We have sand everywhere. We have dust everywhere. If we don't dust our balconies or dust in our home on a regular basis, the dust can just compound. We're, we're used to sand coming in through the, the front doors. We're, we're used to it being dusty. Well, as the man is sweeping in this allegory, sweeping the dust, the dust is flying everywhere, and Christian almost chokes. Because all that's happening is the dust is flying in the air and then coming back and resettling down on the ground. But then water is brought in and sprinkled all over the room. Once that's done, the sweeping is quite easy, even enjoyable, and all the dust is collected. Christian's confused, and there's one called the interpreter who tells him what this means. He says, the dusty room is the heart of man apart from God. The dust is his original sin that's defiled him. The first sweeper is the law. The one who sprinkled the water and swept is the gospel. See, the law shows us our sin, dust flying everywhere. When we look to the law, it doesn't save, it even chokes us. But it's good in that. It's good in that because while it doesn't cleanse us and cleanse our hearts, it shows us our clear need for salvation. But it's only when the gospel comes to bear on the room, or in this case, our hearts, It's only then that our sin can be dealt with and we can be cleansed. All of us are bad, and so we need Jesus. And the only way to live is to trust in another one who's alive, but was once dead and had to rise from the dead. Jesus came to us, God in the flesh. He lived without sin, even though he was tempted, as Pastor Ryan preached last week through Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. And his purpose for living was for dying. He lived to die. He lived to die on a wooden cross where we should have been. Jesus hung. And it was there that he bore God's wrath, that he took the penalty of his people upon himself. After burial on the third day, death couldn't stop him. Death couldn't thwart his saving mission. Not even a tomb, heavily guarded with a big stone in front, could contain him. No, he rose. He conquered death. He conquered his people's sin. Friend, if you're not following Christ, you need to. If you're not following Christ, I urge you to follow Jesus. If you're not following Christ, I ask you why. In the beginning, when asked those questions, if you couldn't say yes to heaven being your destination, why? Why not? What's stopping you? Kids, I see kids 
smattering, smattering throughout this, this room. Tweens, I see some of you in the back. Teens, there's no age to become a Christian. Let me just say that again. There's no age to when you cross that threshold, then you become a Christian. It's not 15, not 18, it's not 12. My friend, if you can understand and you can hear this message, you can believe it. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. No, no age of, of, of Christian faith. All of us can believe. In fact, Jesus tells us to have faith like a child. Friends, if you're not following Christ, trust him to give you life. Turn from your sin. Trust in him. Do you see what these verses are telling you? These verses mean exactly what they say. Apart from God, you're totally depraved. Apart from God, you are a sinner who deserves death and judgment. Ivan Turgenev, the poet, once put it like this. I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it's terrible. Isn't that the truth? The imagery is chilling in the next verses. Our sin is all-encompassing. Paul looks to the Old Testament quotations. He shows that sin affects every part of us. Look at the different parts of the body listed in our passage. Verse 13, the throat, their tongues, their lips. Verse 14, their mouth. 15, their feet. Verse 18, their eyes. We were created by God in his image to use our bodies, our minds, and our hearts to serve God. And yet instead, we've taken God's good gifts and we've used them for sin. Look more closely. Look at verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Well, first, the, the open grave. Today, we normally place a dead body in a casket. Now, imagine bringing a dead body in an open casket in your home and just leaving that body there for days and days and days and days. You can imagine uh, the smells. You can imagine the infections that you might face, the odors. They come quickly. And Paul says that our throats are like an open grave, infecting others with our words, using our tongues to deceive. There's an intention to lie, venom, an asp. An asp is a poisonous snake. Venom is what snakes let out when they sink their teeth into their victims, injecting poison into their bloodstream. Paul says our lips spread this wicked poison, whether it's gossip, slander, hatred. Our mouth is full of curses and bitterness. We know this is true because, friends, we felt the pain of others' words, haven't we? I'll never forget one kid's words to me. I think this is 35 plus years ago. I was on the school bus and I had a very bad, uh, very bad disorder of the skin on my face. I had a horrible rash on my face. Already insecure about it. The boy right in front of me over 35 years ago turns around and makes fun of my face. I've never forgotten those words. It was like a slap to my already scarred face, hard to hear. We've all faced painful words. Words hurt. We also know this truth because our words have hurt others, haven't they? 
I remember moments before my very first sermon. My first sermon happened to be to the university student ministry. Big, big auditorium filled with university students. I was incredibly nervous. My first time to speak afterwards, the university student minister, the head minister, decided to give me some feedback. And that night, only one piece of feedback I remember. And he said that during my entire sermon, my hands never moved, that my arms were glued to my side. And I just preached like this, like a, like a, like a robot, arms glued to the side. Now, you probably can't imagine this now. My arms are flailing all around now. Oh, times have changed, but that day my arms were glued to my side. But I don't rem- remember much of what I said or much of what the response was or anything else that the senior minister told me. But I remember one woman's words right before I preached. Now, we were together beforehand because she was the MC. She was hosting the night, and she would be the one who would introduce me for my sermon Well, in the moments beforehand, she shared with me some words I had spoken about her to someone else that was devastating to her. She began to to weep and to weep and to tell me how hurtful I was to her. And she was right. I apologized there in that moment. And then she got up to introduce me to preach. Out of all the people to introduce me for my very first sermon, it was this woman. It was someone I had deeply hurt. You can imagine my trepidation. What is she going to say? Well, thankfully, there was no mention of my painful words. But I'll never forget that conversation. I'll never forget how hurt she was by my words. Maybe you can recall a time when your words hurt someone. I would be willing to think that all of us have been unkind or lacked tenderness or patience. Maybe we've been arrogant at different moments. We've put someone else down to build ourselves up. We've gossiped behind someone's back. Late night conversation with a friend about someone else. Divulged details we were never meant to share. Passed along news that wasn't ours to make public. Wrote, a, wrote in a harsh tone to a co-worker. That email, that text message you should have never sent because your tone was harsh and unkind. You were, just, you were impatient, so you had to get it out, and you hit send. When you should have taken it to God and prayed. I could go on and on. Friend, how are your words? Do they build up with the edification of the body or do they tear down? Well, all of us are guilty. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul continues, moves from the mouth, the tongue, the lips. He moves to the feet, verse 15. Their feet are, shift, are swift to shed blood. Feet are often used as a biblical metaphor for one's approach to life. Our relationships can, can be a mess. We've angered, we're angered when someone messes with our happiness. We can be quick to pursue violence, either with our words or with our actions. Verse 16, Paul goes on. In their paths are ruin and misery. As we go about our lives, we destroy instead of build up. Verse 17, in the way of peace, they have not known. Why? Well, verse 18 answers the question. Perhaps the question of all these previous verses. Why, why, why? Well, verse 18, there is no fear of God 
before their eyes. There's a looking away from God, no awe, no reverence, no care for his approval, no desire to worship or work for him, no fear of judgment, no fear of letting him down, no fear of God. See, there's a holy fear and reverence of God. He's our master. He's who we live for. He's who we should please. He's who we should follow. His ways should be our ways. We were created to serve God, but given to our fleshly desires, we do just the opposite. Paul's goal here in using the Old Testament quotations is to show that the Jews can't claim to be any better than the Gentiles. Their nation was no more holy than the other nations. How do we know this? Well, their own scriptures condemn them. The Old Testament shows their own moral failure. Paul, as a Jew, is speaking to his fellow Jews. We're all sinners. On Judgment Day, apart from Christ, all of us fail. There's one way to be saved. The late R.C. Sproul tells a story of a good friend of his who did his PhD at Harvard University in neurological studies. The, the friend said that the brain uh, is more incredible than the most vast computer system in the world, that the brain uh, records every word that we've ever spoken. And so he says concerning Judgment Day, this is just an illustration, but this friend to, to Dr. Sproul said that I think that in the last day, God is going to take our brain out of our head, put it on a table in a courtroom, plug in a recorder, and punch rewind. And we're going to have to sit there and listen to our brain replay everything we've ever done, said, and thought. The prosecuting attorney doesn't have to say a word. Now, that's just an illustration. That's not what's really going to happen. It's not truth, but that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? To have all of our words and actions displayed. And not just that, our thoughts. Our thoughts condemn us. None are righteous, not even one. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. No one can mount a defense. Neither the Jew nor the Gentile. All are guilty. But what does verse 19 mean? Well, I think reading this note that's already on the screens there uh, from John Stott is helpful. I can't say it any better than he wrote it. So let me just read what he wrote. Verse 19 has proved a puzzle to commentators. Its purpose is clear, namely that every mouth may be silenced and that the whole world may be held accountable to God. But how is this conclusion reached? The profitable explanation is that Jewish people reading the series of Old Testament quotations would assume that they applied to those wicked and lawless Gentiles. And of course, God's judgment would fall on them. But Paul reminds Jews of their common knowledge. We know that whatever the law says, here meaning the Old Testament in general, it says to those who are under the law, verse 19a, literally within the law, namely themselves as Jews, so that they will be included in the judgment as well. In this way, every mouth is stopped, Every excuse silenced, and the whole world having been found guilty is liable to God's judgment. Oh, friends, this is where this whole section on condemnation has been going towards. Chapter 1, Gentiles, no excuse. Chapter 2, not only the Gentiles, but the Jews also. Here in chapter 3, it's the whole world. Paul brings it all together, Jew, Gentile, 
everyone. And so Paul concludes this section, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now what does Paul mean by works of the law? What likely means the works of righteousness, the doing good. It's the works that the Jews did to gain merit before God. But Paul refutes this goal as impossible. And we get an argument against every attempt at saving oneself. No one can save themselves. One of the purposes of the law at the end of our verse, through the law comes knowledge of sin. The great reformer Martin Luther puts it this way, the principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say it showed unto them their sin that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken. But here's the good news. And by this means may be driven to seek grace and so come to that blessed Christ. Well, the law was a good thing. The law had a good purpose. Another pastor says the first function of the law is to unmask us, to show us that we are sinners, and this is our supreme advantage. We understand at least to some extent our radical corruption. Now, friends, imagine for, for a moment that you're really sick. You're really sick what if you went to the doctor and he or she only talked about happy things to you and how everything's okay? This is what some preachers do. Some preachers, they skipped over condemnation. They just bring you the happy things. They just tell you what you want to hear. Hey, coming to Jesus is great. Coming to Jesus means you're going to have a great and easy life. Coming to Jesus means wealth, health, and prosperity. Coming to Jesus means you can have whatever you want. Coming to Jesus means you can have every dream Come true. Coming to Jesus is pure bliss. Coming to Jesus means no suffering. Coming to Jesus means all smiles, all happiness, all joy every day. Come to Jesus. All your dreams will come true. But this wouldn't be a loving doctor or a loving pastor. Friends, sinners need to see their sin just as a patient with cancer needs to hear a correct diagnosis from a doctor even if it's bad news. Sharing the bad news and how to respond is the most loving thing a doctor, or in this case, a pastor, can do. We don't go to the doctor simply for smiles and conversation. I mean, we hope they're kind. Makes a big difference. But we go to get the truth. We go to get help. Same here with Redeemer Church. And so we attempt, even though flawlessly, to hold out the truth in love. All of us are bad. We're all bad, so we need Jesus. We're all bad, so we need Jesus. That's the main point today. Our response to this section on condemnation, all of us are bad, so we need Jesus. Our response is to raise our hands and say, yes, we've sinned. I've sinned. These pages in Romans don't just point to the murderer on the news. That family member who's hurt us, that friend who's offended us, that person over there, but me. These, these verses in Romans, they point to me. That's our response. That should be each of our responses. These words, they point to me. I've sinned. I need Jesus. That's our response. We don't make excuses. We don't point to our circumstances. We don't shift blame and blame others for our sin. 
We don't claim that we've been hurt. We don't play the victim. When we do that, we mock God and his holiness. Friends, we own our sin, period, full stop. And friends, when we walk in repentance, there is grace. When we walk in repentance, there is grace. His mercy is more. His mercy is more. It's more than all of our sins. It's more than all of God's people's sins. His mercy is more. There is grace and forgiveness and mercy through the cross. And so returning to my question at the very beginning of the sermon, if you were to die today, where would you go? Kids, where would you go? Tweens, teens, university students, young adults, older adults, if you were to die today, where would you go? And I'm going to tell you that you can know. You can know your final destination. You can have security in knowing. I remember being 15 years old, laying in my bed at night, worried about going to sleep because not knowing what would happen if I died in my sleep. Where would I go? Maybe some of you are like that. Maybe some of you just haven't cared and haven't thought about it. Well, I hope today you're thinking about it because when we die, we go somewhere. It's either heaven or it's hell. Friends, unless Jesus comes back first, those are the two destinations. And all of us will die. And there's only one place where we want to be. And that's with Jesus. That's with Jesus in heaven, with our God. If you don't yet follow Jesus, you just need to open your hands. Open your heart. Realize your hands are empty, your heart is empty, and that you need Jesus. That you bring nothing to the table except your sin. That there's no way you can save yourself. That you repent of ever trying to save yourself. That you repent of your sin and you trust Jesus to save you. He will bring you into his kingdom. You might ask, how can a righteous God send good people to hell? Well, church, God would never send good people to hell. It's the wrong question to ask. You've been with us from Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 18, to Romans chapter 3, through 20. You'd know the answer, right? There, there are no good people. God never sends good people to hell. There are no good people. A summary of these three chapters of Romans. All of us are bad, so we need Jesus. There's only one who is good, and his name is Jesus. And God spares those who cling to Christ. Well, friend, may this be true of all of us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for sending us a rescuer. Father, we were running in a desert of our own unrighteousness, dead in our sin. But you've given us spiritual life. For those of us that are your people, you've given us eternal life with you. We look forward to that day when there will be no more sin, temptation, pain, loneliness, trial. Best of all, we will be able to gaze on the beauty of our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. For those who are here, whether six years old or 86 years old, and everything in between, Father, we pray for those that don't yet know you that they would turn to you even now, even in 
the silence of their heart right now as we sit. Pray that you would open the eyes of the hearts of everybody in this room, that everybody would walk out this door today, a follower of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, save souls even now. Father, this message speaks to all of us. If we look at that question, where would we go when we die? We pray that we could all answer heaven. And we know that this gift that's given to us is not a a gift that we can lose, but that you will keep us to the end. Give us security. Give us comfort. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.